This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major is out this week. Our guest today, wildlife biologist and white-tailed deer expert William McKinley. Uh, It is the season, but not the season you're thinking of. We're going to be talking about deer on our show today. What part of the state can boast that most deer? What type of habitat do they prefer? And what can we do to reduce deer-related car accidents? You can join the conversation this morning by giving us a call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major, the veterinarian, is out this week, but we do have a guest in studio. It's wildlife biologist and our white-tailed deer expert, William McKinley. Tis the season, but not the season you're thinking of. Uh, We're talking about deer on the show today. What part of the state can boast about having the most deer? What type of habitat do they prefer? And what can we do to reduce deer-related car accidents? You can join the conversation this morning with your questions. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is 1-877-672-7464, or you can send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that you have two chances to hear Creature Comforts each week, Thursday mornings at 9, with the repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope that you're both doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Uh, Libby, always uh, like to hear about some things going on at the museum. Well, and there's a lot going on. Uh, This coming Tuesday, November the 22nd, from 10 to 12 is what they call Turkey Tuesday. So we know there's going to be Turkey Thursday. (laughs) But before you chow down on your turkey, you can learn some fun things about turkey. Examining feathers under microscopes and looking at egg anatomy of a turkey egg. And, of course, that most of what you learn there applies to other eggs. There are lots of fun things to do, but... uh, a lot of science hidden in all of it, and maybe not hidden quite so much. It's a fun way to learn some science, uh, but you got to make the traditional turkey feather headband as well, <laughs> and there'll be lots of turkey feathers to do that with, so we'll make it easy. So again, from uh, 10 to 12 on Tuesday, and then a reminder, because there's always some sad people, the museum is closed on Thursday, which everybody expects. We also close on Friday. Okay. The attendance is usually pretty low on Good Friday. We just go ahead and 
go with it. And then Saturday and Sunday are big days. So come back on Saturday and Sunday, but stay home with your family on Friday, I guess, or go shop. And uh, Saturday is that uh, small business Saturday in the museum gift shop is a small business. And they have open house with refreshments and free gift wrapping and all kinds of fun uh, presents. And you don't have to pay any admission to go in and shop. And then there's more Christmas Saints coming up later, but I guess we can talk about that later. But just okay. um, look online if you want to go ahead and start planning Christmas because there is the uh, all the snowflake experiments going on and Cajun Christmas again this year. And uh, occasionally we like to remind people both uh, where the museum's located and how they might get in touch. Okay. Uh, it's easy to just... Google Mississippi Museum of Natural Science is probably the easiest way to find out what else going on. And there's all, they're also on Facebook, of course. The phone number is 601-576-6000. And it is located really on the corner of Lakeland Drive and I-55 North across from St. Dominic's Hospital. All right. And across good. from the Children's Museum and the Ag Museum are right there. All wonderful neighbors. And the Sports Hall of Fame. That's right. So this is Creature Comforts. Our guest this morning is William McKinley, a uh, white-tailed deer expert and wildlife biologist. William, thanks for being on the show with us today. I'm glad to be here, Kevin. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. You know, I was, it's always interesting to me to talk to the folks, and I, most of them were the kind of kids that loved the outdoors, you know, spent a lot of time out there. Was that similar with you when you were growing up? Yes, it was. Uh, my, the, I would say my punishment when I messed up was having to sit inside. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I grew up in Louisville, Mississippi, and uh, I pursued my college education at Mississippi State with a bachelor's in forestry and a master's in wildlife science. So is it uh, particular about the deer that you're interested in, or did you do that kind of where you fit in in, in, in the job? Well, uh, I've always had a, a passion for learning about deer, and that is what I've basically devoted my career to. Very good. Uh, we got a couple calls on the line. If you'd like to join the conversation this morning, again, we're talking uh, primarily about uh, deer, but uh, we always like to hear wildlife questions and observations. So the number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. Let's start uh, with uh, Kathy calling in from Covington County this morning. Go ahead, Kathy. Good morning. How are y'all this morning? Good. Doing good. Can you hear me? Sure, yes. go ahead. Oh, okay. I was calling to report an overabundance of bats, of all things. We have a bat box, and there were so many bats trying to get in it yesterday. Some of them were getting pushed out and were actually having to fly and find a crevice somewhere to hide. Wow, you know what? They know that we're going to have a weather change over the weekend, don't they? <laughs> oh, they must. Uh, one time on just one side of the box, usually they like just one side, but yesterday they were on both sides and it was completely filled, but they will not get in our store-bought bat box. They want the homemade one. <laughs> Well, compliments to the home to whoever made the bat box. Oh, you yeah. We need to get them out though long enough where we can repaint the outside. Usually, they'll leave in the winter for a night or two, and we can go out there and get it painted real quick. Mm -hmm. But they're not leaving this time. So you've had bats for a while, it sounds like. Uh, several years. One year, out of one side, when they were just using one side, we counted 186 wow. come out one night, and there is no telling how many were in there yesterday. I started taking pictures 
and I've called the museum, and all their bat people are out in the field right now, but I'm to call them back about 2 o'clock. Yeah, this is a big time of year to do bat surveys. Uh, you, do you mind just describe real briefly to the listeners kind of how you situated your bat? Because we hear lots of people say they've bought their bat houses and no bats. Well, one thing that we've noticed, the house that we actually purchased, the slot that they would fly up in, is a lot bigger and more open than the home-built one that uh, my husband made. And his is probably two and a half feet across and maybe three feet tall. It has an opening, uh, a slot in it for air to circulate, but it fills up with their guana because there's so many in there. But he also roughed up the inside of the board where they can crawl up it better. They just grab onto it, and they just, within a second, they disappear. And, like, you never even knew they were there when they come in for their landings. But uh, they will not get in that wide open slot at the bottom on the store-bought one. So they want a small little space, it seems like. That's, yeah, that, that makes sense. I've been told that. But you also have a pretty good-sized one. You know, sometimes you see for sale a pretty small bat box, and I've heard people say that they've had no luck at all with the little ones. Right, so and that's, we keep this one painted black. It's up in the air off of the shed that we have, and there's an area that we kind of call a runway. It's an open <laughs> space. And they just come down, they make a circle, and they swoop in there, and they disappear before you can take a picture. Sounds like you've got the perfect situation for your bats. But my problem is we like them, but I'm scared what if they get overpopulated and a disease or something comes in. Yeah, can you, I, can I you talk your husband into making a, another couple of bat houses <laughs> and, and locate them a little bit of distance from that one? Might have to. And we'd like to know where they go. Sometimes they'll be gone for two or three nights, and then there's usually one or two left in there that you can hear chirping throughout the night. And when the others leave and come back, those few stay there. I don't know if they home in to their sounds or what, but I'd love to know where they go when they disappear and aren't there for those days they go on vacation, I guess. Yeah, and it may be that they have a vacation home somewhere that they're <laughs> using another spot. L- lucky little bat. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, and I hope you get in touch with somebody at the museum. They may can give you more information than I, I can. I will, and I can send them. I'm putting some more pictures on Facebook. I haven't been out to check this morning to see if they all came back last night or not, but I'll go check in a few minutes. and. I've got some pictures on Facebook and a bunch more they can look at if they'd like to. Oh, good. I'd like to see those, too. Thanks, Kay. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your call. Let's just stay on the phone lines. We'll go next to uh, Karen in Olive Branch. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. I work in a suburb of Memphis where a lot of building is going on, new homes, apartments, businesses, and the deer are being displaced. So I'm wondering what will the deer do? What will happen to them? Well, Karen, uh, deer are very adaptable. That is one of the one of their benefits, and one of the reasons they do also cause a lot of trouble. Uh, so, what they will do is, I've I, I saw a slide at a presentation one time that showed a, a large continuous block of open woods, and it said good deer habitat, and then it showed a subdivision that had been placed in that uh, five years later, and it said better deer habitat. <laughs> so, actually, uh, deer really do like the suburbs. Now, when it becomes more and more developed, of course, they are pushed out 
but uh, subdivisions, uh, buildings on the outskirts, leaving blocks of woods, uh, they tend to become so abundant, they become problematic in those areas. So you may not see them leave at all. Uh, They'll simply shift. They have a very large home range, uh, generally several hundred to a few thousand acres. And they're going to go within that home range to where the best food supply is. So if that doe, uh, say a female deer, a doe, she knows 400 acres. It's where she lives her entire life. Uh, she's going to go to the part of that 400 acres that is she considers the safest and provides the most food. So she may shift out of that area for a while, but she may be right back there in next year. That's great. <laughs> and that might be your garden. It may not. We'll find those plants you set out yeah. in your backyard. So. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Karen. Hey, we need to take a quick break here. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting this morning with wildlife biologist William McKinley, teaching us a little bit more about white-tailed deer. If you have a question or a comment uh, and would like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open, and the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more Creature Comforts after this. MPB seeks a digital media strategist to be responsible for design, oversight, and management of MPB's website, MPB-created macrosites, and other web applications. For more information, go to mpbonline.org. Coming up this week on MPB's At Issue, we preview the 2017 legislative session. Lawmakers will soon get back to work at the state capitol. Education, infrastructure, and the budget are expected to be at the top of the agenda. MPB political analysts, Democrat Brandon Jones and Republican Austin Barber, provide insight on the critical issues facing the state and how legislators handle them. Join us for Mississippi's only statewide television news program, At Issue, this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB-TV. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and our guest today, wildlife biologist William McKinley. We're talking about deer this morning, but also looking for your wildlife questions and observations. The phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's one 672 You can always email the show animals at mpbonline.org. So, William, we've mentioned the white-tailed deer. Is that primarily the one that is in Mississippi, or do we have other kinds of deer in our state as well? Uh, in the free range, white-tailed deer are the only native deer to Mississippi. Okay. Uh, if any, someone may see a different kind of deer, there are a few that are allowed to be farmed 
uh, some other species, exotic species, but uh, they're not not native to Mississippi. So um, what about uh, an average size for uh, both maybe the female and, and male deers? Uh, well, that varies uh, quite dramatically across the state, as a matter of fact, with the western side of the state tending to have the Delta area tending to have the heaviest deer, uh, with bucks weighing well over 200 pounds there and does averaging around 125 to 130 pounds to southeast Mississippi tends to be some of the smallest deer with bucks averaging more around 150 to 160 pounds and does being 100 pounds or less. Would that indicate maybe that the there's better habitat in, in the Delta area? We actually, uh, through MSU, conducted a long-term, it was actually a nine-year research project that looked at the difference in genetics and nutrition across the state, and where we captured a whole lot of deer and raised up their offspring on standard nutrition from across the state. And we found that genetically, those deer in the South actually caught up to the deer the bigger deer in the Delta within just two generations. So it is nutrition-based. It's soil Mm -hmm. nutrition-based. Lower pH soils in the southeast tend to provide lower quality uh, uh, food. So it's uh, the delta is, uh, is uh, the food source for the deer as well as the humans. Then. That is correct. <laughs> so how would you describe the deer population? Is it a healthy population in Mississippi? It is a healthy population, and uh, we estimate it to be around one and a half million animals. Uh, now that is an estimate, of course. They don't hold still and be counted very well. <laughs> <laughs> they won't fill out a census, but. Uh, there are populations in the state, localized areas where the deer herds are declining. There are localized areas where they are increasing. So, and places that they were high not too long ago, they're lower now and vice versa. So uh, the deer population is driven by the habitat on a larger scale and habitats change and thus the deer population changes accordingly. Got some callers on the line. So let's go back to the phone. Starting again in Hattiesburg, Lisa has called in today. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. Um, I always wonder what should I do if I see a deer on the side of the highway, especially at night? Well, Lisa, first off, good that you're seeing them uh, because a lot of people don't see them when they're going down the road. But keep staying alert and knowing that the key times for deer movement are going to be right at dark and very early in the morning. They tend to be, they're called crepuscular, which means they move late in the day and early in the morning. Uh, and of course, they also move at night, all night, but the key times are right at dark. When you see a deer on the side of the road, obviously slow down. A deer crossing the road, uh, remember there's almost always going to be more than one. So when you see the first one come, slowing down and being prepared for that second deer or third or fourth as it comes across the road. And one of the key things, don't swerve to try to miss the deer. Um, That usually ends up with a much worse accident than just continuing forward. All right, Lisa, good good call. Thanks for that question. Let's uh, move on next. We're going to go to Ridgeland. Mark's on the line. Hello, Mark. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, I've got a uh, deer problem around the house with them eating up my uh, my shrubs and my vegetable garden both. I'm looking for advice on what I can do about that. Well, Mark, your problem is not limited to you, I assure you. Uh, <laughs> and that problem exists wherever there are white-tailed deer. As, as we said before, they're quite adaptable to human habitation. And you can take, by putting a house and developing an area somewhat, it actually becomes better deer habitat. Um 
some of the ways I've combated that, I too, I grow a garden. I have problems with deer in that garden. I've put up an electric fence around my garden. Now, you can't necessarily do that around your entire lawn. I want to preface, though, that that electric fence is actually two electric fences, one inside the other. And a standard electric fence, they'll figure it out pretty quick and just start jumping. It has to be two entire fences, roughly four feet apart. That tends to work about 95% plus effective. The plants and the shrubs that are in your yard, you obviously can't just put a fence up around everything. Uh, One thing I've had a lot of success with is buying some ground cayenne pepper, soaking it in a gallon of water, then straight overnight, straining it back out so that I, that water turns quite red. It's very hot uh, with capsaicin. And then putting that in a sprayer and spraying the plants. I've done that in the garden and on shrubbery, and it works. They'll take a bite. It burns their mouth just like ours. They go take another bite. It continues to burn. They decide to go elsewhere. You have to reapply after every rain and reapply every few days just because of dew accumulation. So at least once a week, but it's a fairly cheap application. Okay, well, I grow habaneros, so maybe I can... <laughs> yeah, just chop a few up, put them in a gallon of water, then strain it back out and spray your plants with it. Uh, it, it works. Is there any provision in Mississippi law for elimination of nuisance deer? Uh, we do. We have what's called an animal control permit where you can contact our regional offices and get a permit. And our officers will actually come to the scene, determine the problems, and then they make a call on whether or not those deer need to be removed or not. Uh, we always try scare tactics and deterrent tactics first. Uh, but in some cases, removal of the deer is necessary. Yeah, that, that, that's not the my first choice. That's not what I would like to see happen. But, you know, if, if it's going to be the deer or my garden, you know, my garden's going to win. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, uh, do you live in town or are outside of city limits? I live in Madison County. I live in the county. Okay. Uh, if you do not hunt, allowing someone to hunt that you trust on your property, if you have enough property there to hunt, is a very effective tool at removing, uh, reducing the numbers, and thus that's going to help in the long run. Okay. Madison right. County's got a lot of deer in it. So. Yeah, it does. Thank you so much. All You're right, uh, Mark, thanks for your call. Just a couple of quick follow-ups. I know we were talking uh, during the break, and we, you said one of the reasons why the deer are so attracted to gardens is because we're putting fertilizers and everything in there to you know, being big, big, healthy plants, and mm-hmm. they're saying, hey, that tastes pretty good. Uh, that is correct. When you enhance a plant, and, and we do, whether it be in our yard or whether it be in our garden for food, we want healthy, nutritious plants. Uh, deer find those healthy and nutritious as well, and they can taste that. They can go through and take a bite of something and realize that this is more nutritious and kind of unlike us, deer tend to gravitate toward what is good for them. Uh, So they tend to try to find what's good for them and eat more of that plant, which may happen to be your pepper plant or your pea vine in your garden. But then also your solution, basically it's sort of saying making your plant, your garden, either tough to get into with the fences or with the pepper spray, uh, they won't like it and they'll move on because they're interested in finding something that they like and that they can eat and they'll find it elsewhere. Correct. All right. Very good. Uh, Let's go next to uh, Mikey, who's called in from Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. Hey, good morning. Um, uh, I, oh, this, as usual, it's a great program. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you can answer this question for me or not. Um, 
are in a semi swampy area is Lantana, Four O'Clock, and or Merliton Chayote. Is that poison to natives like gopher turtles and amphibians, all rabbits and animals, or is it a food source for birds? Or all of the above. Okay, Mikey, I'm gonna have to do some research for you. You're saying Lantana. Yes, ma'am. And Chayote. Right. Which I can't believe is because I love to eat it. I can't believe it could be poisonous <laughs> to anybody. And what was your third plant? Four o'clock. Four o'clock. Old fashioned, yeah, very old fashioned southern plant. I'll ask around and see. You haven't asked Felder that, huh? Beg pardon? You haven't asked Felder. <laughs> well, I asked. No, not that because he, you know, he doesn't know about. The, he doesn't answer the stuff about the animals. About the animals. Okay. Well, let me find out. So, them, but I'm not sure. I don't want to make. Sh- I want to make sure that where I'm growing them, it's not poisonous. And it's particularly co- for the gopher tortoises. Oh, that's right. I remember you've got gopher tortoise. Okay, I will try to find out for you. Thank you so much. All righty. Listen, ma'am. <laughs> thanks. All right, Mikey. Bye. Thanks for the call. Uh, let's go next to uh, Dorothy, who's called in from Oxford today. Good morning, Dorothy. Good morning. I have a question about some deer behavior. I was walking my dog on a path in the woods, and he was a good bit ahead of me and did not see these deer, but up a hill, two white-tailed deer with no antlers charged him, ran right at him onto the path, kicked him hard enough to make him lose his collar, and he limped all the way home. And, of course, he yelped after they hit him. But before that, he seems to not react to them at all. Why would they do that? Protection of their phones. Uh, that's definitely sounds like an, a doe's protecting phones. And whether okay. he came up on the phone or not, uh, the phones were probably somewhere nearby. My guess is this was probably in either late summer or early fall when this happened. Is that right? It was last week. It was last week. Uh-huh. So uh, those does were most likely protecting those phones. And deer tend to be aggressive toward uh, members of the canine family anyway. You know, coyotes will naturally prey on deer when they're young, but the the adult deer will actually turn around and run coyotes off. And it's, it's not much of a difference from a deer's perspective in a dog and a coyote. Is the dog a small dog or a medium size or... He's medium, 45 pounds. Yeah, that's a little large, but they very well may have thought him to be a coyote, and and uh, we're just protecting their young. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, Dorothy, thanks for your call. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to join in on Creature Comforts this morning, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, so we, when we talk about the, the life of a deer this time of year, uh, you know, or, uh, early fall, getting into winter, what, what's going on with the deer? Well, uh, deer are, bucks are in hardened antler right now. The antlers go through a, an annual cycle in which they grow, grow back every year. Uh, they're living tissue, and they're covered in a fine velvet, uh, soft velvet. They are have active nerves and blood vessels in them. Then they harden and lose their velvet, which happened about late September to early October. And now deer are just, uh, the main thing that's happening right now over most of the state is they're eating. 
They're trying to fatten up. This time of year, a deer's body starts converting almost everything it eats to fat. And with the acorn crop, we have a really good acorn crop this year. Uh, there are a lot of acorns. Deer really like those as a high-energy food source, and they're layering on fat to carry them through the winter. The bucks are getting ready for the breeding season, which will begin happening in early December in North Mississippi and as late as late January in Southeast Mississippi. Um, at that point, they will almost stop eating for several weeks, so they'll depend on those fat reserves uh, so in addition, hunting season uh, is open now, but gun season, uh, the season that most of the hunters in Mississippi uh, partake in, opens this coming Saturday. Okay. Uh, we need to take another quick break. When we get back, we'll, we'll follow up on, on hunting. And also, I had a question about antlers that I wanted to ask about. Uh, we're also looking for your questions this morning about deer by giving us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more Creature Comforts after this short break. MPB seeks an experienced multimedia journalist to produce NPR-style news stories and features on issues of local and regional interest. And be comfortable and competent with social media and reporting on multiple platforms. More information at mpbonline.org slash more slash careers. This week on MPB Season Pass, it's our basketball preview edition as Ben Howland from Mississippi State joins Jay White. Also, we speak with super senior Devin Schmidt from Delta State, and we'll talk to William Carey head basketball coach Steve Knight. And in the minutes, Jay and I will discuss whether freshman Shea Patterson can lead the Rebels to a bowl game. It's MPB Season Pass today at 10 on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major is out this week, but our guest today is wildlife biologist William McKinley. We've been talking about deer and taking some other wildlife questions from you this morning. If you'd like to join in, call us at one 672 So, William, before the break, you mentioned antlers. I'm wondering, what, what, are, what is the purpose of a deer having antlers? Oh, that's been argued since uh, they began to study deer. But for the most part, they're used for fighting. Okay. They're used for fighting, for breeding dominance, and for pecking order dominance also. Deer establish somewhat of a pecking order of I'm the boss over you. And and uh, they're also used to fight off predators, but to a much lesser degree. Primarily used for breeding fighting. 
Two bucks lock up and fighting over a day. And is it genetic how big that their antlers will get? It is both genetic, age, and nutrition. Okay. Genetics having a portion of that, but the proper nutrition having a very large portion of that. And they get bigger as they get older. So, And is it also showing off to the females, look at my big antlers? <laughs> you know, there's been some studies done on that, and it... it it really is not uh, in some of this in a lot of the research studies on uh, selectivity. There, that doesn't seem to be a key factor on which bucks get to breed versus uh, which ones don't. So, okay, uh, a few key things about antlers while we're on that topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are considered one of the fastest growing tissues known to man, uh, aside from cancer cells. It's a lot of research been done. A lot of cancer research is done on antlers, and we still don't fully understand how the antler grows. Uh, with the, all the modern science we have, it's still, you know, uh, a lot of the native cultures held them in esteem as magical. Uh, but this antler regrows every year in just a few months, growing literally inches per day hmm. at times. Uh, and then is able to harden, calcify, a trigger of hormone of testosterone, a drop in testosterone signals them just to fall off and the whole process to restart. So really interesting stuff. All right. Uh, we got another caller on the line. We're off to scuba this time. Leo has called in today. Good morning, Leo. Good morning. Go ahead. Uh, what is the best uh, food plot to put out for beers and uh, what nutrition to put out for them? I have no problem with, eat, with them eating up my fish, but they can eat it up because I don't eat them. I'm going to hang up and let them. All right. All right. Leo, uh, I get asked that a lot being a, a deer biologist. And my favorite planting, if I were to pick, if this was all I was going to be able to plant, is a mixture of wheat, oats, and white clover. And the white clover, only if you've done a soil test and you have that soil conditioned right, you need a pH of at least 6.0 or higher. A soil test, $8, take it to your county extension office. You just need a, a basically a quart Ziploc bag full of soil from that food plot. It'll tell you what nutrients you need in your soil on your food plot. That works for your garden as well. Um, but you take that, follow that to get that pH up, then plant wheat, oats, and white clover. Of course, if you're dealing with a year in an exceptional drought like we are this year, there's a lot of people out there that are, well, including me, have watched my money go to the sparrows and the turkeys and, and everything else as we tried to plant and uh the dry conditions did not uh, did not allow germination, and now it seems the birds have gotten most of the seed, so... And I can tell you, my dear love, okra and turnip greens. <laughs> they <laughs> they have cleaned me out, yes. <laughs> We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So let's talk a little bit about hunting. What uh, h- uh, impact does hunting have on deer population, and, and how important do you think hunting is in managing deer population? Uh, Kevin is critical, and... Hunters in Mississippi, hunt, deer are the most sought-after game species in Mississippi. Uh, uh, the most recent survey from U.S. Fish and Wildlife showed that 92% of the hunters in Mississippi hunt deer. Now, most of those also hunt something else, but like myself. I like to hunt turkey. I like to hunt waterfowl. But deer tends to be the staple that most people pursue. Uh, 
the numbers of deer being harvested across the state are they're they're quite staggering. Uh, licensed hunters are taking anywhere from two hundred and fifty to three hundred and twenty five thousand animals per year. That's licensed hunters. That does not include uh, uh, anyone under or over the age that needed to buy a license. So we actually estimate that to be closer to uh, a half a million animals coming out every year. So if you factor every animal, every one of those deer is producing about 30 pounds of venison, uh, well, venison's really feeding Mississippian, you might say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, what happens if we suddenly were to stop harvesting all those animals? Well, the deer herd in many areas is already overpopulated. In others, we mentioned before that it's actually slightly declining or or declining. Uh, But if we suddenly stop deer harvest, we're going to see numbers escalate very, very rapidly. A deer herd doubles about every three years. So within just a few years, a handful of years, that one and a half million is going to be upwards of six million. And as those numbers, it's already in some areas, uh, almost unsafe to drive down the highway in some areas with high deer populations, that would become uh, much worse. Gardening would become much more difficult. Farmers would suffer. Uh, It impacts our economy drastically. Uh, You know, another survey recently done showed that uh, hunting is having a huge impact on Mississippi's economy and producing hunting and wildlife uh, hunting, fishing, and wildlife, producing over a billion dollars into the economy of the state. So deer hunting has a huge impact on Mississippi and on the deer population themselves. Um, take away that harvest, you're dealing with unhealthy animals, unthrifty animals, even to the tune of uh, prior to antlerless harvest coming on strong. Antlerless harvest really started gaining popularity in the late 90s and early 2000s. Prior to that, we were seeing starvation dogs on a wide scale in certain parts of the state in the 80s and early 90s. We don't ever want to see that again. And we there are no predators left uh, that are taking down grown deer for the most part. Coyotes and bobcats will take a few, but that's a very small number compared to the harvest that, that hunters are having. And if I remember correctly, you know, so you're helping maintain a healthy deer population, but also isn't part of the money from the hunting license go back in to help preserve wildlife habitat and, and those sorts of things? Yes, it does. Uh, money from hunters fund wildlife conservation in Mississippi. And through the money they spend directly on a license and through uh, excise tax called the Pittman-Robertson Act, where money is set aside in a coffer in in the U.S. Treasury, uh, when they buy a rifle, a shotgun, ammunition, they pay a tax unknowingly that gets redistributed back based on the amount of hunters. So every time we have more hunters buying a license, we actually can get more federal money toward uh, doing more toward helping wildlife in the state. So if you're a hunter out there, buy a hunting license. <laughs> you don't want to get caught without it. And you mentioned, I think you said the, the gun season opens Saturday? That is correct. Gun right. season opens Saturday. I know a lot of folks are looking forward to that. Uh, back to the phone lines we go. Keith's called in today from Gulfport. Good morning, Keith. Hey, good morning. Just a quick question. Uh, Maybe silly. I'm not a hunter, but uh, I have a lot of oak trees, and I don't think I've seen this many acorns in a lifetime. And I'm just wondering, 
Can you collect these acorns and, like, take them from Mississippi to Arizona and put them out, and would they attract animals, or is that something you'd have to discuss with Arizona as far as the law of baiting deer? I certainly recommend you talk to Arizona before you do that. In some areas, it is not legal even to feed uh, our bait. So I can't give you permission to do that by any means. But uh, acorns are a very strong attractant to deer. But then again, if you took acorns from either a laurel oak or live oak, which is quite possibly what you would have there in Gulfport, and you took them to Arizona, they've probably never seen them and would have no idea that they were supposed to eat them either. So uh, I can't tell you. What I was wondering is that there's just so many of them, I'm just like, I'm actually vacuuming them up and uh, with a shop vac. (laughs) Yeah, you uh, might dump that in the woods somewhere and it feeds, it might feed something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another consideration, I recently read that about 50% of acorns have a larva of an insect in them of some type. And so you would be taking those insects wherever you took the acorns possibly. Okay, so I don't need to be doing taking them. No, don't take them out of state. but might be a problem. Dumping them out in the woods would be just fine. And critters are going to find them and use them, and they'll stay viable. Those are members of the red oak family, and they'll stay viable until they won't sprout probably until about April or so. So they're going to feed animals all winter. Well, if things were real bad, I'd do what the Indians did and make coffee out of them. <laughs> Our flour. <laughs> All right, uh, Keith, good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. Uh, let's take one final break this hour. When we get back, we've got a caller on the line, but we've also got some open phone lines. So if you want to add your voice to our conversation this morning, do so by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Support for MPB comes from the Old Capitol Museum Statehood Day, Thursday, December 9th, featuring an address by the First Lady of Mississippi, Deborah Bryant, at noon, with a reception to follow. Details at oldcapitalmuseum.com or 601-576-6920. Today is Thursday, but you know what tomorrow is. It's Friday, and that means high school football. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tomorrow night at 10, right here on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is wildlife biologist William McKinley. We've got a caller on the line, so let's go to Gulfport. Bakur has called in today. Good morning. Go ahead. Uh, Good morning, sir. I appreciate you taking my call today. I was wondering, uh, until this year, I never, I, I, I thought it was just one rot season, and I read somewhere that there are actually two rots. So there is a pre-rot rot and pre-rot rot happening, you know, twice. I just wanted to make sure that was the case in southern Mississippi, Osha uh, Gulfport area, or is it something I got wrong information? No, Bakura, uh, we actually do... Uh health checks we've been doing now since the 80s and in a manner that we we're able to determine exactly when deer are breeding across the state and we've got data from the tennessee line to the gulf coast and and all the way across the state uh what we found in in your area there is that the peak of breeding is going to be in late january to around the first week of february however the breeding of deer tend to be as spread out over about a six-week time frame. So while if you, if you read research out of the Midwest, out of the northern states, breeding the breeding cycle tends to be much more condensed. And that's a ability to cope with winters. We don't have a, so much of a winter impact in Mississippi. Therefore, the breeding can be spread out much, much wider. So... Uh, some does may come into season in early January, while the most come in in the last week of January, and then others are coming into season well on into February. And should a doe not get bred during her first time, she will also come back into season uh, 28 days later, and she will continue to do that until she gets bred. I see. Uh, thank you very much. That's okay. Great. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's uh, move on next. We've got Wayne on the line from Long Beach. Hello, Wayne. Go ahead. I uh, wanted to uh, just tell one thing. I uh, was bred sweet potatoes for years with the university system in Georgia, and uh, I had deer come in, and they were very specific. They would walk over maybe 30 or 40 feet of sweet potato plant and dig up one and then go to another one. And I know they browse, but they were very consistent in in the replant they went after these potatoes again so they do have taste somewhere (laughs) yes they do Uh, i've seen the same thing with oak trees uh i've seen where they will bypass several trees that are dropping acorns and go to a specific one to eat even of the same species of tree i've seen the same thing with honey locust pods in the delta the honey locust tree uh they tend to find what tastes best um and what is more packed with nutrients, why that particular could be a specific spot within the soil in the field, uh, could be a specific to that plant. I can't tell you exactly without having it and, you know, taking it to a lab. And, and then even then, we may still never figure it out. So, <laughs> but uh, it was very interesting. They would go after one one and not any of the rest of them. But uh, we finally fenced it and got them out. So, uh uh, we were able to save our potatoes. All right, very Thank good. Thank you very much. Enjoy your show. Thanks for the call, Wayne. <clears throat> uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, deer uh, car interactions. Uh, d- does buying the deer whistle and putting that on your does that have any impact whatsoever? You know, there's been some studies out there, and I can't do a, a, a advertisement for anything. 
But uh, I'll just say that a lot of the studies out there have shown that deer become conditioned to those pretty quickly. Okay. So as they would with anything, uh, people talk about, you know, back to the gardens of putting human hair in it or hanging perfume or a lot of stuff works for a short period of time, but deer adapt quickly. Um, What people need to remember on deer vehicle collisions is that the deer are going to become more active as winter continues. Most of the deer vehicle collisions in Mississippi occur in December, January, and February. We're collecting data on that, and we see a definite uh, uh, peak uh, within our observations, and that tends to occur around the breeding season. And what's happening during the breeding season is bucks are chasing does. They're actively chasing them for a day or a day and a half at a time. And during that time frame, they tend to zone out. Mm -hmm. And they run across the highway. There's no thought there. And they run across and they get hit. So another key thing on if you ever see a deer cross the highway, um, then the second one is the one that people tend to hit, the second or the third. Um, The deer that are grazing on the side of the highway, they have become completely accustomed to the vehicles, and they tend to be the ones paying very close attention. So those that are grazing right up to the line are seldom the ones that are getting hit. It's those that are running across without thinking. So paying attention, especially during early morning and late afternoon, and and early evening time frames and just being an alert driver don't no cell phones uh uh pay attention and that's going to help prevent a lot of your deer vehicle collisions all righty uh what about uh suggestions for uh best hunting locations i know or, or is that uh, you know i know fishermen don't like to give away their favorite <laughs> fishing spots is that the same with hunters well you know we have uh about a million acres in mississippi over a million acres that is available to open public hunting uh now, regulations on those areas vary. Some are our areas managed by Mississippi Department of Wildlife. Uh, they're called wildlife management areas. They're open to to anyone with a hunting license that wants to hunt. Some require you to be uh, to put in for a draw, but most don't for deer hunting. Uh, hunters simply need to buy a $15 wildlife management area permit, and that's good for all of the wildlife management areas in the state. They're not site-specific. You buy one, it's good for all of them. Uh, and then they have to fill out a daily use permit card. That's very important so that we know how many hunters are using the area and what animals are being taken off the area. Uh, you also have National Wildlife Refuges that many of these allow hunting by permit. You have to buy a permit or put in for a draw. You have the National Forest System. You have Army Corps of Engineer Land. Uh, there are no one can say they don't live within uh, an hour's drive of public land hunting in Mississippi. So I hesitate to say any one being better than the other. Some are better for trophy animals, um, meaning a larger antler buck, but you may not see as many animals. Some are better for seeing seeing a lot of animals and stand a better chance of harvesting a deer. Um, Bottom line is, if they have any questions, they're welcome to call the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks and ask for areas near them or look at our digest. We have most of those public, I guess all of those public areas listed in the Outdoor Digest. That's online at mdwfp.com. 
And I guess you could also go to that website to, to find out information about uh, uh, buying the hunting license, but also what what time what season is in season that sort of thing. That is correct. All of that is uh, on our homepage. You can see season dates. You can buy your license online or at any sporting goods, most any sporting goods vendor. Uh, so you can buy it over the phone at one eight hundred five Go Hunt. Uh, so there are numerous ways. It's, it's easy to get a license. Got about a minute and a half left. Maybe some final reminders, some things, folks. As you mentioned, uh, deer gun season starting on Saturday. What are some safety tips that uh, folks going out in the woods can keep in mind? Uh, the hunters are required to wear 500 square inches of blaze orange. Uh, the broken camo pattern orange is not sufficient. The mesh vests are not sufficient. It needs to be unbroken 500 square inches of blaze orange. That is for the hunter's sake. And actually, deer cannot see orange. They see it as a shade of green. They can see blue incredibly well. So those people that say, I'm not going to wear my orange, but they hunt in blue jeans, the deer are spotting them like a sore thumb. <laughs> so uh, wear that hunter orange for your own safety. The other Biggest accident hunting. First off, hunting is one of the safest sports out there. Um, it, the numbers I've seen show it to be quite safer than golf. So, the hunting is a very safe sport. Uh, but some of the key ways of accidents, the most likely is hunters falling out of a tree stand, hmm. and tree stands break. Uh, some parts of it break. Wear a safety belt when you're climbing into a stand. Make sure it's affixed to the tree properly. Make sure everything's set up. Check them every year. Don't rely on a stand you put up last year that you think you're going to walk into in the de- before daylight Saturday morning and climb up in. Squirrels and all ropes, all kind of things could happen. So pay a check, wear a, uh, a safety vest, a uh, safety belt, and uh, let somebody know where you're going to be. All right. Good show. Thanks uh, so much, William, for joining us this morning. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Funding provided in part by the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science Foundation and contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Jonas Adams and our call screener was Sharita Brent. So for Libby Hartfield and William McKinley, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's MPB's Season Pass with Jay White and Sam Wells, followed by Southern Remedy at 11. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another other creature comforts it's heard only on mpb think radio This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.